Hi, and welcome to Coffee, Cake and Culture, the podcast with me, Andy Bromberger, on our second venture into the world of music, this time looking at the world of rhythm. And hello, Rob, lovely seeing you again. Hi, Andy. Very excited about this one and I wonder where we're going. What are we talking about today? So today we're looking at the world of rhythm. Now, rhythm is really exciting because if we think about rhythm, rhythm is the maverick in the musical world. Think about it. If you have melody, do you need rhythm? I think you do. I think it's like the beat. Can you imagine what is melody without rhythm? It's it's just blobby notes. It's like jelly. Think about harmony. You have to have rhythm for harmony. Think about the bass, the bass line. You have to have rhythm in the bass line. Think about any aspect of music. Every aspect of music has to have rhythm. But think about rhythm. Does rhythm mean need melody? I'm not sure. I mean, there are, there are situations where you just hear the, you know, drums. Unlike all other aspects of music, which have to have rhythm, rhythm is totally independent. It doesn't need anything else to survive. It's fabulous. It's a, such an exciting topic. But Rob, this is coffee, cake and culture. And I'm taking a bit of a sideline today. I hope you don't mind. Just as rhythm is the maverick, my baking skills are going to be a bit maverick today too, because instead of doing a cake, I'm doing biscuits. And I suppose we can call them cookies. The biscuit I'm looking at is something called alfajores. And I apologize for anyone who is Spanish speaking. These are biscuits made in Argentina. These are sort of like Aussie Anzac biscuits, but but Argentinian. And they're these beautiful, light, crispy biscuits with amazing dolce de leche, which is almost like tomato sauce in Argentina. It's on everything. And it's squidged in between these two beautiful biscuits and then has um, coconut wrapped around it. They are just amazing. Somehow sounds a bit like a lamington on overdrive meeting a sandwich with an Anzac biscuit. These are pretty amazing. And the reason I suggested or thought about these biscuits is because the rhythm in South America is spectacular in Central America. You know, you've got salsa, you've got all these tangos, you've got all of this unbelievable rhythm coming from that area of the world. And so what better way to celebrate rhythm than in Central and South America and with these fabulous biscuits? Okay, well, I think we're all imagining sort of hips moving in a way that neither will mine can't. <laughs> and after eating all this Dolce de Leche, we probably need to move those hips as much as possible. Okay, let's start with some music. Teiko drums. Now, Teiko drums are these incredibly large Japanese drums, and that ensemble is really quite amazing um, for two reasons. First of all, those drums are being played by the ensemble is mainly made up of women, and if you saw the size of these drums, these drums are enormous, and this is the biggest workout you could possibly imagine. Not only playing these drums, but it's a it's rhythmic. It's it's a dance that they do while playing these drums. It's just incredible. Google taiko drums or just Japanese line drumming and it's it's remarkable. I actually have seen these guys maybe 15, 20 years ago in concert and I remember feeling like I'd done a workout by just watching them. They're just fantastic. And that's the way that drums is this maverick. You know, there's nothing there except for the drumming and you don't feel like you're missing out on something. You don't go away saying, oh, where was the melody? You are totally mesmerised solely by these beats and this rhythm. And I suppose the question is then, what is rhythm? Rhythm is a series of sounds and silences put together to create a pattern. Now, I'm going to say that again because I think it's really important. Rhythm is a series of sounds and silences put together to create a pattern. And I think the thing that's really important is the silence. Because if you think about melody, there's often not silence in melody. But when you clap a rhythm... Those are notes or, or um, sounds and silences to create a pattern. Otherwise, if there wasn't silences, you'd just be hearing ta. It's not. It's not a wall of sound. Yeah, it, it's like there's timing attached. 
And the interesting thing about rhythm is that it's the bit that works immediately and spontaneously with our bodies. It stimulates our bodies and our bodies react to it immediately. So when you hear music, the first thing you're actually grabbing onto is the rhythm of the music. And without music, as I said before, notes are just like a jelly. I mean, there's nothing to actually hold them on. It's the steps of a dance, it's the meter of spoken language, and it's the lilt of poetry. But I suppose the question needs to be is, why do we love it so much? And how does rhythm work? And it's really interesting because all mammals hear their mother's pulse and heartbeat in the womb. That's the first rhythm that we hear. We hear it at conception, this beat that goes on through our whole time while we are being created. But it's only humans that take that concept of rhythm and take it into our lives. No other mammal reacts to a beat like a human. Not, there is not one. Because there's some music that you just hear it and it's the rhythm and, it could, and you just want to get up and dance or you react to it. And it seems not to matter whether the rhythm is simple or whether it's complex, whether it's short or it's long, it doesn't matter. It's just the rhythm itself that makes, takes us on this incredible journey. And there are a whole lot of ideas as to why we are so, it is so innate in us. The musicologist, composer, raconteur, a guy by the name of Howard Goodall, in his series, How Music Works, thinks that our love of rhythm started when humans stood up and we started walking and just the sheer walk from left, right, left, right. It now seems more plausible that the key rhythmic moment for us Homo sapiens was when we got up off our knees, hands and backsides and started to walk on just our two hind legs. The other interesting thing about humans is that we seem to have this innate instinctive understanding of rhythm. If I say tick, you're going to say top. If I'm going to say up, you're going to say down. Exactly. And that's a rhythm. I mean, I could say blah, and you're going to go blah. It's a rhythm. So these, this concept of rhythm is something only humans do. Again, do it with a cat or a dog or a monkey or a gorilla. They're not going to have that same reaction as we have. And even before we had words, we had a rhythmic language that we'd be able to communicate from one person to another. So before we had the concept of, of speech, we had rhythmic speech. And the amazing neurologist Oliver Sacks said, no other mammal shows an innate concept of rhythm like humans. And even a person who's had a stroke and has no functioning ability will still understand and perceive the concept of rhythm. It feels so old brain and raw. Exactly. And that is exactly what it is. It is being around. Our, our innate concept of rhythm has been around forever. So rhythm can be either simple or complex. We're going to hear a whole series of rhythms now. Some of them are going to be very simple and some of them are going to be pretty complex. Rhythm. Some rhythms are fast, some rhythms are slow, some rhythms speed up, some slow down. And in classical music, we use the term tempo to discuss the, the speed and the, the pulse of rhythms. And we use words like largo, adagio, vivace, moderato to indicate the speed. But what's in interesting about many of these words is that they no, not only give you a speed, but they give you a mood. So the words may mean coolness liveliness, jauntiness, somberness. So not only are we getting a speed indication, we're getting a mood indication as well. But let's now look at what makes up 
rhythm. The first thing we need to look at when we look at the the makeup of rhythm is the pulse. All rhythm starts with a pulse. And the pulse is typically what a listener listens to. It's what they latch onto. It's what you tap your foot to. It's what you dance along to with a piece of music. The pulse isn't necessarily the fastest or the slowest component to the, the rhythm, but it's the one that is perceived in the music. So if I'm to do this, the pulse isn't any of those notes. What the pulse is, is the that you don't hear, but is implied underneath the music. So I'll do it again. And what you are beating, if you were to tap your foot, would be. Pulse is a reflection of, you know, the beat, I suppose. It's, it's, it's like in, in the body sense, it's like, you know, saying what's going on in the heart. It's a representation and in music, it's the same word. It's interesting that they are the same words. Yes. And that pulse in music or the tempo, if we're going to use the, the musical term, can be either audible or implied. So in most classical pieces, the pulse is implied. So we're going to hear now Sanson's Swan from the Carnival of the Animals. It starts with this beautiful harp playing. Now the harp isn't going so that the cellist knows how to play. The harpist is playing this beautiful accompaniment. But even though they're not bashing out a beat, you can definitely tap your feet to the beat. And when the cellist comes in to play the melody, he or she is also knowing where the beat falls, although the beautiful long sounds of the, the cello writing don't give you an audible beat. No one's bashing out a beat to you, but there is that feeling. If I asked you to have clapped the beat as it was going through, there's no way that you wouldn't have got it right. It's so there, although it's not there at all. Now let's contrast that. I know, Rob, you probably didn't expect to hear any Akadaka in a classical music podcast, but for those who don't know who Akadaka is, it's ACDC. It's a heavy metal band. And we're going to listen to a little bit of ACDC now just to hear the difference because most rock pop music has a drum kit and the, one of the major um, roles of the drummer is to not imply the beat but to audibly give you the beat. Andy, I did not expect Akazaka, and obviously it's, it's quite a specific image of them. You know, I know we've got lots of Akadaka fans. The guitarist Angus Young actually has rhythm in the way he plays as well, like his head's dressed as a schoolboy going back and forth. If you look at all musicians move when they play, and the way they move is following that pulse or the beat. Now, if we think about that beat, then the pulse, one, two, one, two, one, two. We can relate that to our own bodies. As I said before with Howard Goodall, we have a left, right, left, right when we walk. And when we walk, we don't walk metronomically. We don't walk A, B, A, B, A, B. There is 
a natural um, groove in the way we walk. One leg is always going to be more dominant than the other. And so the way we walk is with a groove. And so we do exactly the same thing in music. When we count music in an A pulse, we don't count it metronomically. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. There are innate accents on each of those pulses. Now, if we're dealing in music that is in what we call 4-4, that means that there are four pulses in each bar. And a bar is a line in the music to indicate to musicians that four pulses have just happened. And a bar line is almost like a space between words. It means that musicians have more of an idea where they're going. If you'd had no bar lines, music would be very hard to decipher. Exactly the same way as if we had no spaces in words, words would be very hard to read. So that's what a bar line is. So if we're looking at 4-4, which has four pulses in each bar, each of those pulses has a different weight or a different accent. The first note, one, has the strongest, three, the second strongest, then two, then four. So you go one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. And that, again, gives you this innate form of groove. Just the way I say it, you can sort of see a groovy sort of action going on because that is an innate concept of music. And it's interesting, that emphasis, because I do you do imagine different people walking in your gait and things like that. And you know, I, I'd never thought about it having a dominant foot for walking, but I get it now. Obviously, if you're looking at rhythm, rhythm is made up of more than just one pulse. It would be pretty boring if that's all it was. So let's now have a quick look at the, the rhythmic values of music. Now, if we talk about that pulse, one, two, three, four, as being one beat on each pulse, we call that note, we crotch it, and it's worth one beat. If we have notes that are worth two beats, one, two, three, four, they're called minims. If we have a note that's worth four beats, we call that a semi-brief. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. And now if we're going down to the quicker side of the scale, again, we have the crotchet, one, two, three, four. And if we then subdivide that crotchet, so we break it in half, we have two halves and we have one and two and three and four and one and two and three and four and, and they're called quavers. And then if we break it one more time, we have four notes in each crotchet and they're called semi-quavers. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, two, three, four. I'm having reactions and memories of my uh, piano teacher, Mrs. Gortheim, trying to uh, teach me rhythm. But, you know, the thing is, I get it, you know, it is, it's, it's how you divide up each sort of the bar. That's right. And that's the basic form of rhythm. And composers have used those basic rhythmic values to write lots and lots and lots of music. Obviously, there are lots of other rhythmic values, but there, that's the core of the rhythm. So let's look at a piece of music by the composer Handel. Now Handel's dates are 1685 to 1759. And he wrote this amazing piece of music called Zadok the Priest. And he wrote this piece in 1727 for the coronation of George II in Great Britain. And interestingly, this piece of music has been used in every coronation since that time. And there's a very good reason for it, because it is such a... An amazing piece of music. It starts with the orchestra playing a very long introduction. And the introduction is made up of those semi-quavers and quavers, those quick beats. Which goes on for a very, very long time. And the length of it is so important because you're sitting there impatiently you know that something amazing is about to happen you can feel the tension something remarkable is about to happen when you're almost at that breaking point the choir comes in and the choir comes in with big long majestic notes 
minims, semi-breeze, what we call dotted minims, which are three beats, um, crotchets on this very slow tempo. And it sounds like something that is majestic, something that is regal, something that is stately is about to happen. This is music written for a coronation of a king in 1727. There's nothing much bigger in 1727 than the coronation of a king. And when you hear this piece of music, you can understand the gravitas of this piece of music. Now we're going to listen to quite a long excerpt because I want you to, to feel the length of this introduction before the choir actually comes in. I suppose it's used at dramatic. And you can see it's like processional music. You can see you know, the whole stately procession happening in front of you. It's just amazing. It's fabulous music. We have another incredible composer moving really into the late 20th century, Philip Glass, an American composer who in 1983 wrote a, an opera called Akhenaten. And he wrote this prelude to Akhenaten and he did exactly the same thing as what Handel did. But the outcome is completely different. So Akhenaten was a pharaoh in Egypt and he had a pretty shaky reign, I suppose you can say. So what Philip Glass does is he gives us exactly the same rhythmic idea. You hear the semiquavers and you hear the quavers. So just the same as the introduction to Handel. But the big difference comes with those accents. So with the Handel you hear dubba 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 which gives you this sense of stability. What Glass does is he takes those accents and he puts them on all the wrong beats. So it starts on the first beat, dubba dubba, and then it goes to the second beat, and then the third beat, and then the fourth beat. So if you try and tap your foot to this music, it's really difficult because although the rhythm is identical from beginning to end, because the accent is in a different place, you feel totally out of sorts like you just don't know where to put your foot it's like you're walking on quicksand you don't know where your next foot's going to be and this is only because he's changed the accent not the rhythm in any way shape or form have a listen
my raw reaction to that one was like feeling uneasy. Like, like it is funny how just a little change can actually make you uh, feel a bit on edge. That's right. You feel uncomfortable. You have a real sense of uncomfortableness listening to that music. So not all music is in 4-4. Four, four. two, three, four. The other major, what we call time signature, is 3-4, where we have three beats in a bar. Now, we still use minims and crotchets and semi-reeves and, and all that sort of stuff. But we use, we have a one, two, three, one, two, three going rather than the one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Now, when I say one, two, three, one, two, three, you can just hear the lilt. It's just very lilty. And that is the lilt of Anglo-Celtic folk music. We think about the jig. To emphasize this, we're going to listen to a little bit of the cause who are going to play a jig. And I would love you to try and go one, two, three, one, two, three as they're playing. time is also a limerick. Now I'm not very good at limericks and it was hard to find a limerick that was actually PC enough to go onto my podcast but here I go. The limerick packs laughs anatomical in space that is quite economical. The good ones I've seen so seldom are clean and the clean ones so seldom are comical. One two three one two three one two three. But let's now pull it back to the classical world. Let's look at the waltz. The waltz was this incredibly important dance of the late 18th, early 19th century. And it was scandalous because what happens in a waltz? You dance arm in arm with your partner. And that was considered incredibly scandalous at the time. And when we get into the 19th century, we have the Strausses, both the older and the younger Strauss, writing hundreds of waltzes. So in the late 19th century, composers were trying to find new ways of writing music. We looked at that last time when we looked at melody. We looked at what composers were doing in the melodic world in the 19th century. Well, they were also trying to do the same thing in the rhythmic world. And they tried to look at displacement of the beat. Now, I know that sounds confusing, but what it means is changing the place of the emphasis, a little bit like what we were listening to with the Philip Glass. So if we have the beat going one and two and one and two and the pulse, the important accent is falling on the number one and two and one and two. But what if we put the important pulse not on the number, but on the and one and two and one and two and we have something called syncopation. Syncopation is a really important aspect of music. It gives the music drive, it pushes it forward. You couldn't have jazz or ragtime or funk or reggae or rap or any of those musical concepts without the concept of syncopation. One and two and one and two and one and two and you just feel like you need to move. You can't sit still when you feel this thing called syncopation. It's such an active rhythm. Let's have a listen to some jazz having this concept called syncopation.
Also, we have this thing called syncopation. And in the 1890s in the States, in America, we have a brand new type of music called ragtime. And one of the big exponents of ragtime was Scott Joplin. The way ragtime came about was that there were lots of marching bands. And if we think about the makeup of a marching band, you have the the sousaphones and the trombones and the tubers down the bottom going, you have the flutes playing the melody up the top. And in the middle, you have clarinets and saxophones playing all those harmonies. Now, what Scott Joplin wanted to do was put all those sounds onto a piano. So how are you going to have all those instruments with only two hands and 10 fingers? The way he did it was he had the bass part going on the bottom of the piano, and then he broke up the harmonies and the melodies by bouncing between harmony and melody. And by doing that, he was using syncopation. Let's hear some of his entertainer. Now, this is actually being performed on a pianola roll of his actual performance. syncopation all going on it's really that I, I never realized that ragtime was trying to reflect a marching band when you hear it and you know that you, you can see the marching band it's it's just there in front of your face in the 19th century they thought that they had almost invented this concept called syncopation but in actual fact Baroque composers like Bach and Handel had been using syncopation so right back into the Baroque period and they loved the concept of syncopation. If we look at Bach's invention number six, he uses this crude concept of syncopation. Now I'm going to play the piano for you. Bach could have written this in his invention number six. Now he could have written that and that would have been very lovely but he doesn't. He breaks up the left hand and the right hand and instead we hear a simple form of syncopation. sometimes try when I'm listening to music to not listen to the melody and try and listen to just the rhythm and see what I'm if you can cut out the melody and just hear what's actually happening in the rhythm it's quite a fantastic experience and there is something sensory about it compared to melody it really does tap into your body absolutely and you can see that with babies if you look at babies babies will bop to music they're not listening to the melodies they're listening to the the rhythm that really gets them bopping they can't move they're sitting on their bottoms but they are bopping now we're going to listen to some more great bopping music and that's boogie woogie now boogie woogie was developed in the african-american communities in the 1870s but came really popular in the 1920s and it's the only music which was exclusively written for the piano that came out of the whole blues movement the music emphasized the rhythm over the melody and it was mainly associated with dance. So let's have a listen to some boogie woogie music. (laughs) 
Now, you can't listen to that and not move. It's almost impossible. But let me tell you about this music, um, Rob, because it's really hysterical. So there's this fantastic boogie-woogie musician. She's from Switzerland. And she's I say she, she's one of the few renowned um, boogie-woogie female players. And she had just done a tour in the UK and she was at King's Cross Station and there was a piano. And so she sat down and she started playing and that's that beginning that you've just played. And then this guy rocks in and starts playing with her. And the two of them play for ages together. And you would think that these two were either married or knew each other because the vibe between the two is just remarkable. And they finally finish playing and they go, hi. And they actually introduce each other themselves to each other. They had no idea. She, he knew that she was this fantastic player and he just sat down and started playing with her. It's the most incredible symbiosis between the two of them. Just remarkable musicianship. It was hard for me not to make a fool of myself and start dancing. It, it, it is. You can see the rhythm. You can feel it's uplifting. It's right. And so composers in the late 19th century thought that they had invented this concept called boogie-woogie. Let's look at one, another one of those masterful composers, Beethoven. His piano sonata number 32, opus 111. And let's look at the last movement and the third variation. Now you play this, Rob, to me, and you tell me if Beethoven wasn't playing boogie-woogie. That's really interesting, and I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have picked old uh, Ludwig as a boogie woogie, but it is. You can hear it. You can hear it coming through. It's hysterical. It's just fantastic. And what's really funny is to listen to older conservative pianists trying to de boogie woogie that part, and then you have the younger pianists going, "Let's just go for it because this is fabulous." Let's move back to the serious world of music again. And we have to look at another type of rhythm. This rhythm is called cross rhythms. Now, this is where we have two conflicting rhythms playing at the same time. So just say I have one hand playing quavers and the other hand playing triplets as in three. So you have two against three. I could clap that for you, but unless you can see what I do, it doesn't really make sense. I could just be going. This concept of two against three is something that we call cross rhythms. And it's something that the 19th century composer Brahms used a lot in his music. We're going to listen to the first variation from his St. Anthony chorale. Okay, so we have this two against three. Now that's really quite simple cross rhythm. Only 40 years later, in 1913, the Russian composer Stravinsky wrote a piece of music which was probably the most important music of the 20th century, The Rite of Spring, a ballet written for the Ballet Russe. This piece of music caused a riot in its first performance in Paris in 1913, where apparently the police had to be called and 40 people were ejected. This is one of those pieces that everybody in Paris said that they were at the premiere because it was such an event. People were throwing things and screaming and shouting. It was so noisy that the ballet dancers couldn't hear the orchestra below them. Diaghilev, the director of the Ballet Russe, thought it was the most fantastic thing. Stravinsky thought that his music had caused, well, it had caused a riot. This piece of music was just unbelievable. But what he does, Stravinsky does in this, he doesn't do cross rhythms because that's too simple. 
he does something called polyrhythms, where you have different members of the orchestra all playing different rhythms at the same time. Now, that doesn't mean that someone's just playing crotchets and somebody's playing quavers and someone's playing minims, because that all makes sense. What he has are people playing triplets against fifths, against crotchets, against quavers, all of these different time signatures all happening on top of each other. I get it. There's something really frenetic about it. It's insane. So the whole piece of music is about the sacrificing of a virgin. It's a pagan ritual. And the amazing thing about this piece of music, well, there are heaps, but when it was first performed in 1913, the orchestra couldn't play it. And it didn't mean that they physically couldn't play it. It meant that they just didn't understand what Stravinsky was getting at. And in fact, the conductor had to tell the orchestra not to stop rehearsal the whole time and say that there was a note mistake because they weren't note mistakes. They were just so radically different from anything that had been written before. And in fact, it wasn't until after World War II that orchestras really could get their head around what Stravinsky was trying to achieve in this piece of music. And what's even more amazing is that today, good student orchestras can play the Rite of Spring. Now, that doesn't mean that 100 years later, we are so much more talented. But what it means is what Stravinsky did is he opened the door to all of this incredibly rhythmic and textural music that other composers then took hold of. And now, although we still listen to the Rite of Spring and go, oh my goodness, what was Stravinsky thinking about in 1913? We look at it in awe rather than quizzically because we now understand what he was doing. And so much music after it has taken ideas and concepts that now students understand where he was coming from. When I was listening to that, the music that it was reminding me of, West Side Story, it was really the, like the, the sound was quite similar and it was the groups with different rhythms, literally. So that, that was what was occurring to me. But I, I, I get why, it's bizarre, I was going, oh, I get why this music like, nearly radicalised It totally people. did radicalise people. And it's interesting you use the analogy with West Side Story because it's Bernstein who actually talks about the fact that student orchestras can play this while they didn't in the past. And you're right that Bernstein did use different time signatures in his music. So that also had that sort of concept of what Stravinsky is doing. But Stravinsky takes it to a totally different level. Now, again, we think that in the West, we almost invented this concept of cross rhythms. But if we listen to African drumming, they have been doing this type of cross rhythm forever. And they just don't do boring fives against sixes and all that sort of stuff. These guys do combinations that we couldn't even begin to imagine. Have a listen. guys are doing is that they are clapping their hands but they're also clapping their chests so they've got these different timbres in their clapping which just adds to the impact of this fantastic cross rhythm now let's go one step further with this concept of cross rhythm and i'm taking you again to a place you probably didn't think you were going to be going to in the world of classical music and that's rap 
Rap is a complex beat with a person speaking quickly in a rhythm. And the relationship between that complex beat and the rhythm of their speech creates cross rhythm. So we're going to listen to a little bit of Grandmaster Flash, the message from 1982. And I'd like you to listen to it and don't try and listen to the words unless you want to listen to the words, but try and listen to the rhythm of the words and how the rhythm of the words relates to the complex rhythm of the accompaniment. It's like a jungle sometimes, it makes me wonder how I keep from going under. It's like a jungle sometimes, it makes me wonder how I keep from going under. Broken glass everywhere, people... On the stage, you know they just don't care. I can't take the smell, can't take the noise. Got no money to move out, I guess I got no choice. Rats in the front room, roaches in the back. Junkies in the alley with the baseball bat. I tried to get away, but I couldn't get far. Cause a man with the tow truck repossessed my car. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. Now we need to move into the latter part of the 20th century. And as I mentioned last time when we were looking at melody, in the second half of the 20th century, composers started to get a little bit bored of melody and they started looking at other aspects of music to take over the main role. And one of those aspects was rhythm. And composers started to look at the rhythmic complexity more than the melodic complexity. And we have a composer by the name of Elliot Carter who died in 2012 at the age of 103. In the last 10 or so years of his life, between the age of 90 and 100, he wrote 40 pieces of music. So this guy was pretty remarkable. In 1980, he wrote a piece of music called Night Fantasies. Now, I'm going to try and explain this to you. It is complicated. It's a piano piece with two hands. One part and both parts have a different tempo. So one has one speed and one has another speed. One speed has 216 notes between each beat and the other has 175 notes between each beat or pulses between each beat. One pulse happens every five and a half seconds And one pulse happens every seven seconds. So these are enormously slow beats with an enormous number of notes in between each of those pulses. Now that sounds incredibly complex and it is, if you look at it, it's incredibly complex. But this is what it actually sounds like being played.
Handel and the Zadok the Priest, you know, they are both rhythmically complex pieces, but the Elliot Carter is just so complex, but also has a spaciousness about it. It's, it's really quite remarkable. Rhythm is fundamental to our lives. It's how we walk. It's how we talk. It's our very essence, the pulse of that, the beat that runs through us. As you mentioned right at the beginning, our heartbeat is a pulse. We have this rhythm innately in us. We can have rhythm without melody, but we can't have melody without some form of rhythm, whether it's simple like our pulse or complex, like those beats of the West African drums. Rhythm stimulates us and makes us want to move and want to groove. And I think we need to do a bit of a dance after this. So, Rob, thanks so much for this. I hope I've shed some light on the world of rhythm. And next time you listen to any form of music or even walk down the street, you'll feel a sense of rhythm that maybe you didn't feel or see before. Look, one thing that I'm learning from our sessions together is that, you know, music is not just about listening, it's about all the senses. Speaking of the senses, Andy, there's a taste one that I'm quite interested in. An alfa is that what you're talking about? <laughs> Were you too scared to try and say the word? <laughs> Absolutely, there's, de- there's definitely an accent in there that I want. So come, please join us next time and we'll be looking at the world of harmony. So we'll be listening to some pretty beautiful music. I'm Andy Bromberger. I'm with Rob. Andy, thank you. Looking forward to Harmony. Uh, If you're enjoying this podcast, make sure you let everyone know, rate and review it. It's available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And let's have some... Afajores. Afajores. Till next time. See you then. podcast has been produced by etales.com.au that's www.etales.com.au does your company or organization or even yourself need a podcast contact rob at etales.com.au